Okay, please turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. I'll be reading 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. 1 Peter 3, 8 through 12. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Lord, uh, grace, grace my lips to teach the text, to unfold implications, to help make them clear on how we should think about our lives and Christianity and this text and our relationship with you. May you protect me from harming these people with bad thinking, bad theology. And may your Holy Spirit rest upon our hearts to bring great assurance of the glorious gospel of grace to us, broken, undone, sinners in your holy name Amen this is part two of this passage so last week here we go in 30 seconds what we saw last week that brings us to this week is that in verses 8 and 9 Peter has told us Christians how to feel what should be going on deep down in our hearts in relationship within the community of believers in the local church. And how we should from that act. Have one mind. Be focused on what is central. Jesus. The Gospel. Be sympathetic. Actually care. Have brotherly love. Splanknoi, with, in other words, with, the, with the heart. And concerning yourself, don't take yourself so seriously. Be humble, minded. And now, when we hurt each other, don't return evil for evil, for insult for insult. Then we saw the end of verse 9, which I said last week is really crucial because there. Peter tells us why we should be that way. And what we saw, he said, this is why. This is why you should feel that way. It's why you should not return evil for evil. Because you were called to this. That you may inherit a a blessing. Or obtain a blessing. And we ask the question, what does that calling refer to? Called to what? Is he saying, come on, live this Christianly way because you've been called to inherit 
that mercy. I mean, that will work. It works. Nothing wrong with that theologically. And, that, and that's true. But in that sense, if that's what it means, there's no conditionality there. Or we saw, and if you need to, that sermon will is be available. Or does the calling refer to live this way? That is, have these five dispositional traits or foment them or encourage those or pray for those. And, okay, and then act out by not returning evil. evil. Because you're called to do that. And that would mean that word that in English or the, the henna in Greek. It would mean you do that for the purpose that you will inherit a blessing. And so, and that we saw that in that way then, which I argued, that's what I think Peter means. And thus Peter motivates our not returning evil for evil. Loving, even when we don't deserve it, or the other person doesn't deserve it, at that moment, loving them, he motivates it by the condition of inheriting eternal life. You want that? Don't you? So, the way we act, this is where we are now coming this morning, the way we act according to this text, the way we act and live out our, our Christian lives imperfectly is in some sense a means of inheriting that future blessing. That's where we left it last week. Now, this morning, the question is, how are we to understand that without drawing bogus, unbiblical, theologically inconsistent conclusions from that? Okay? So what I mean is, Peter, in this letter, and it's a short letter, he is, I'm going to try to show, made it clear that if you have... When did you come to faith in Christ? When were you changed or converted to Christ? When that happened, eternal inheritance laid up for you was, and thus is, secured. It's yours. And that's biblical. Or, just for a moment... The way Paul would say it, with, you have been justified by faith, by faith alone. And, and meaning, it's happened once for all. And it's a done deal. And, and, and you're not going to lose it if it's yours. Okay, so if that's true, if faith unites us to Christ, heaven is absolutely assured, which I think Peter's teaching, then why should we take paragraphs like this, conditional statements like this, live this way in order that you inherit? Huh? My brain just went, I don't, I, it seems illogical. I don't get it. That, that's the question that we're addressing now for the next 45 minutes. And the way I want to do it is just stay in Peter and say, as we come to chapter 3, Especially verses 8 to 9. <laughs> he, he doesn't say this in a vacuum. 
He has already made some things very clear which we must take into account in understanding how we should internalize this conditionality, live this way in order to inherit. Following me? What I want to do, I want you to turn back to chapter 1. And start there and see what he already said, especially concerning Christian living out, you know this hard thing we do, and how that's connected to the future eternal blessing. Start with verses 22 to 23 in 1 Peter chapter 1. What we see here, now listen, Peter describes right here the beginning of the Christian life. He describes it by talking about God's act, not yours. But also talking about your act of obedience. Here is the beginning of the Christian life. Listen to it. Verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since or because you have been born again. Not a perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Okay, now notice, there's the command, like we have. Be this way. Be sympathetic. Don't return evil for evil. Here, Philadelphia. But not just acts, a sincere brotherly love. Now, he bases that command upon you being a Christian. He has two foundations for that command. The first one comes before. See it? Having purified. That's it. Your souls. By obedience. That's not God's obedience. Your obedience to the truth. For a sincere love of the brethren. That caused something internally concerning loving the brothers. That having purified, with the ing, having, it means because. In other words, he's leading up to the main thing he's going to say. The command. Love one another. Sincerely. Why? Because you have purified your souls. Don't you get it? By your obedience to the truth. Therefore, love. And then he gives the other reason. Love one another sincerely. Brotherly love. Sincere brother love. Why? Since, or, in other words, because you have been born again. The being purified and the being born again are both foundational. They're they're parallel arguments to the command. Now you love one another. means they are two sides of the same coin. They're inseparable, in other words. What is? God's sovereign act of regenerating you. That's the big word for causing you to be born again. He did it. You didn't do it. Period. 
But the text says that act of God and your act of obedience to the truth, these are the inseparable things from which the Christian life comes. The command, love one another. Now, why is that? That reality, I think, is crucial because we're going to get back to our text here in 10-15 minutes. It's crucial because it lets us understand what Peter's thinking about this whole life of Christianity, how you live. It's crucial for us to understand the life of sanctification, living out, growing, battling our sin, repentance, etc. And the reason it is, is because the human act of obeying the truth in verse 22, what is that? At its core, that is In other words, one's a Christian's initial and ongoing vertical trust, hoping in God help me relationship is the key for Peter in having the fruit of love. What I mean is, look at verse 22 again. When he says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, which, notice, it produces a sincere love of the brothers. That obedience to the truth does not refer to ethical behavior there. That obedience to the truth doesn't refer to you obeying the command to love your brother. That obedience to the truth there is what is prior to foundational to the act of love. Which is, what's foundational? What's the obedience? It's His way of saying here, you're coming to Christ. Your faith in Christ. Do you see that? Your obedience to the truth is your faith in the Gospel where hope is produced. And therefore, the ability to obey the command now that He gives to act in love comes from, in Peter's mind, only from if that reality is true in you. So, in the context, our act of obedience to the truth, that is, the proclamation of the Gospel, I see it! Yes, it's mine! Call it faith, call it coming to Christ, what do you want to call that? That is inseparable in this text from God's act of new birth. Okay? Now, what really makes that crystal clear in Peter's mind is verse 3 of chapter 1, where he has already said, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to His great mercy... He has caused us to be, here it is, born again to a living hope. God's act of born again, new birth, produces in us an action called hoping. A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. So God's act of regeneration produces that action in the heart of us 
persons. Now notice, just keep reading. Something else new birth produces. New birth not only produces living hope. That's Peter's way of talking about faith, saving faith. It's, it's trusting in the promises that are still future. Living hope in those. In verse 4 he says, Therefore that new birth is unto an inheritance. Same word Peter uses in chapter 3 of our text. That you may inherit the blessing. It produces an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, <coughs> kept. It means reserved in heaven for you. For you who? For you who by God's power are being guarded. You're being protected through faith for a salvation that's still yet future. For a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So, what we see very simply so far is new birth secures the future eternal inheritance. It secures the reality that has been promised to you of the resurrection of the body, of seeing your name written in the Lamb's book of life and everything else the Scripture tells us about His second coming. New birth, if you're born again, you cannot not get it. It secured it. And it secured it because it secured the faith, the living hope, by which it is given to you. That's what verse 3 says. And then he uses new birth again in verse 22 as the foundation. And he says, now you see the foundation? Let me say it in different words. I'll call that living hope this obedience to the truth of the gospel. It's coming. I embrace it. Therefore live. And now one more in chapter 1. Notice what he says with the connection of vertical, your faith in the gospel, relationship with God, and horizontally living out as broken people, sinful people, on this path of changing conduct. In verse 13 to 15, he gives us this link of what's supposed to be happening in the life of a believer. Quote, Therefore, after laying out the gospel and all of God's work for 12 verses. Therefore, church, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, got it. Love that. Yes. And now... As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions or desires of your former ignorance. But instead, as He who has called you is holy, be holy in all your conduct. So here, hopefully in grace, He says, and then He says this, don't be conformed to these desires that are still with you. 
He calls them passions or desires of your former ignorance. He's not saying that if you get born again, you don't have sinful desires. He calls them in your former ignorance. Meaning, those former desires, they're the the way in which the only way you went, even if you're religious or unreligious, you knew not God. Everything always was tainted and broken and sinful, even in your best doings. He means they're ignorant desires that you lived by because that was all you had before you were born again. Before new birth came. Before your eyes were open to the light and the beauty of the Gospel of Christ to see the glory of who God is for you in it. Before you were ever, 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 ever able to experience what Peter said in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 1. He says, here's what, here's what it looks like to be born again. Here's what living hope looks like. Here's what faith looks like. Though you don't see Jesus, you love Him. Though you don't see Him now, yet, yet, yet believing, you rejoice with a joy inexpressible and filled with glory. That's new birth. That, that's a miracle. That's the essence of faith. He says, in your former desires, the only thing that drove you were the desires of the way the New Testament calls it, of your flesh, meaning sinful nature, or of the world. That was it. But now, his point is, that Christ got a hold of you, changed your heart, placed in you a living hope. Those are not the only desires that are available to you. Something drastic has transitioned in your life by new birth by the presence and the indwelling of God, the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to go and get, I want to grab a commentator and quote him. Because if, I, if I'm being clear of what Peter is saying in chapter 1, I want you to listen to another guy, a commentator, on what I've been trying to communicate. And I think he does it so well. His name is Paul. He's an apostle. And this is the way he said it in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. Listen, I'm saying nothing more than what I think Paul's saying here. Christian, you were dead in your trespasses and your sins in which you once walked, lived, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the spirit of the air that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom we, all of us, once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the flesh, of the body, and of the mind. And we were, by our very nature, children of wrath. Just like the rest of mankind. This is Paul's equivalent to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, when Peter says, God caused you to be born again. This is what Paul says right here. He just says it with different words. But... God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved 
us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. But God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. End quote. That's what Peter's saying. That's Peter's theology. He's saying the same thing. That our being alive, that God producing the living hope has replaced in this way for Peter the former sinful desires. There's a battle going on now. So the old conduct, as Paul says, the way we all lived, that way before you came to Christ, Something's changed. Because that came out of the old desires, which were the only desires you had. But now something different's going on. You have new desires and new conduct. And so new conduct is flowing out of new desires. But at its core, that new, the new desires can be described as your walk with, your trust in, your faith in the Word of God, in the Gospel of God, in the work of God by His Spirit, through all those things as you are now in a battle against sinful dispositions that remain till death. So Peter, what we see now, throughout in chapter 1, he, he depicts Christian conduct so far in chapter 1 as the outgrowth of new birth. Or to say something, it's not exactly saying the same thing, but if you say it is the outgrowth of new birth, that means it is the outgrowth of genuine faith. One degree or another in our lives. So, now let's go back or forward to chapter 3 where we start. Verses 8 to 12. So we come back here. Now, having just kind of hold that if you can up here in your head. Okay? So we come to this text in there's a sense in which now Peter is saying that there is a condition or conditions, that's the Christian life, Christian living, this process that is a condition for getting the future blessing, which I think he means eternal life, the inheritance. Okay? So... Therefore, two errors which we should never come conclude from this that we've seen so far to be utterly unbiblical and inconsistent. First is to read this conditionality of Peter, okay, but say, which is true. And the way Paul says it, the way Peter means it. When you come to saving faith, that very moment God justifies you. He no longer holds against you as your judge from which you will be punished any sins. And He views you perfectly as the one man Jesus Christ lived. And that happens at the moment of salvation. There's no conditions of your living that bring that about. All of that is biblical. All that is true. 
Here's where the error would be. Therefore, since that is true, loving others, working on that, repentance constantly, daily, in the way we live, in our life, has nothing to do with receiving the final salvation in the end. That won't stand up with the Bible. And there's been many blatant teachings like that within American evangelicalism over the last hundred years. The whole lordship salvation debate, and then some of you don't even know about others. You do. And you know, you can just you said the prayer, you did this little thing, and there's never any fruit. Doesn't matter. You're going to heaven, they're told. It, it doesn't it doesn't work biblically. That's one error. Don't read it and say, okay, therefore not moved at all by the condition and how it points out sin in my life. Who cares? All I care about is getting a vital inheritance and I got that no matter what. Well, it doesn't work. The other error would be to interpret the conditions and warnings of Scripture, which we run into one here at First Peter. But they're all over the New Testament. They're in Jesus' mouth. They're in Paul's pen. They're in the book of Hebrews. Take care before we will get a hold of that final future salvation. If you hold fast and firm your faith, firm until the end. Okay, These clauses, if clauses, are, are all over the place. But it is unbiblical to conclude that, oh, because those are real, there is... No such thing or hope of having an assurance of my salvation. Bible? No. That's not true. There's all kinds of ways to press on for assurance of your salvation. Or, or I mean, just tax it. The, the, the worst conclusion, worse than that, would be to think that, oh, I know, that's right, i got to do this, i got to do that better, because I have to act Christianly in order to earn or merit the future blessing. Following me, those would be unwarranted and unbiblical conclusions. So, I'm going to go systematically. Okay, if not that, what should we understand as we wrestle through this? First, concerning that, that initial conversion experience, concerning God's act of new birth, a few things are true from that. First is this, that salvation at new birth is assured. It is secured for everybody who, as the way Peter says in chapter 2, has been called out of darkness into His marvelous light. It's, it's for sure. Secondly, because of new birth, it means that salvation, that that ultimate goal, that ultimate prize, the future, the resurrection, the judgment day, my name's in there. All of that is guaranteed at the moment of your coming to saving faith. And the third thing we know from new birth is that when one person comes to that faith by new birth in Jesus, that saving faith, which has united them to Christ, bears some fruit of loving others. 
Now, concerning the condition. Live this way in order that you get... How do we look at it? Well, it's true that this... Something is going on in a person's life from conversion to death. Whether that death is two hours away, like the thief on the cross, something was going on. It's the only reason what, that he actually started speaking and said, Remember me. Okay. Sanctification. Something is happening that, that grows out of that conversion experience. That in a sense, the way the biblical writers, plural, put that something, that it is, in a sense, a condition. I th- meaning, it's there between conversion and death or the second coming that's there in order to get that second coming. Let me just say, it's not biblically a condition for justification. That happens when genuine faith is there and you are justified once and for all. Which means, if that's true of you, you will inherit that eternal life. But the Bible just speaks this way. Now when the second coming comes, when the resurrection comes, and all that, is that final salvation yours? Yeah, it's if you're justified, sure is. And therefore you'll see these things, not as the root of receiving it, but as the fruit of genuine saving faith, or the fruit of new birth. And because that's true, biblically, it's why you see it, it is legitimate for Paul. It's legitimate for Peter, and thus it should be legitimate for us pastors today who preach Peter and preach Paul to motivate loving behavior, sanctification, repentance, etc. by the promise of the future inheritance. So, here we are. I want to read something that maybe help us. The reason I'm doing this, look, because I know if you're hearing me, you know that you're probably not hearing me all. You might want to hear it again because this is deep. But I think very practical thinking how we think about our life. And, and I want to read because here, here's the deal again. Wait, okay. Are we justified by faith alone? Joe, were you justified in 1981? Jesus came and changed your life and a miracle happened to you and, and He just became precious to you. 19, yes. Do, do you believe that eternal life, the resurrection of the dead, to dwell with Him forever, heaven, whatever you want, but was secured for you once and for all? Then, yeah. Certainly do. But we have all these warnings in the New Testament to genuine believers to constantly persevere to the end, or you won't be saved. How do you put those together without a God? Here, so. Tom Schreiner, a New Testament scholar, who also happens to be a Christian. Those don't always go together. Some of you may not know that. Uh, He writes, to help with this dynamic, quote, The shipwreck story in Acts chapter 27 
is one of the most colorful in scriptures. You remember that? Paul's on the ship, he's in prison, he's got the guards, okay? They're in a storm. The storm struck with such fury that all aboard despaired of living. Acts 27. Paul, however, received a word from the Lord that every single person on the ship would be saved. That is, every single person's life would be preserved. They wouldn't die. The word that everyone on that ship would live was a divine promise, pledging safety for all of them. Some of us might be inclined to relax and take it easy after receiving such a promise. Paul, on the other hand, did not think that such a promise ruled out the need for admonitions and warnings. This is clear as we read on in the narrative. The sailors, remember, they feigned, they pretended that they were just lowering the anchors when actually they intended to lower the lifeboat and to escape the ship. Paul responded by warning the centurion that if the sailors left the ship, the lives of those on board will not be preserved. Which is it? Which is it, God? Okay, got it? He goes on. Why would Paul even bother to admonish the centurion about the scheme of the sailors? After all, he already had received a promise from an angel that everyone on the boat would escape with their lives. Paul did not reason the way many of us do today. God has promised that the lives of everybody on the ship will be saved. Therefore, any warning is unneeded or superfluous. No, the urgent warning was the very means by which the promise was secured. The promise did not come to pass apart from the warning. But it came to pass through it. Schreiner concludes, The same approach should be applied to the promises and the threats in the Scriptures regarding our salvation. It is by means of taking the warnings seriously that the promise of our salvation is secure. End quote. So in other words, what I'm trying to say and do this morning is just to say we want to take the text that we have run across seriously. We want to read it. Are we reading it right? Okay. But we need to take the whole letter of 1 Peter as a unity so we don't come to bogus conclusions from that. Okay. So I'm starting here. With Peter, as I look at chapter 1 and I look at the conditions in chapter 3, I don't think he thinks he's got a contradiction going on any more than Paul did by adding warnings. And that's the point. So, so what do we do? You know, home group, in a way, was, in a way, it was precious this last week. Hopefully, I think the other one was too. When you run across as a believer 
be this way. And isn't it, no, not all this do stuff. The do stuff will flow out of that like you can't return evil for evil, which is hard enough. But actually feel instead. And so we, you know, we, we, we feel appropriately that we're not perfect yet. We feel appropriately that we're broken. We feel appropriately we have so much darkness and sin in us. And so, so here's a, what do we do as Christians in the context of all that, that, that we've seen in chapter 1 and here today? How do we live this out? And the answer is not merely okay, I'll just do some external act. Because you can't do that with Peter's text. Because it's not about external acts, the first part of it. It's about internal. And we don't return to evil. He says bless. And bless is something that comes from the heart. So what do we do? We recognize the grace of God for the Word of God coming at us. It convicts us. And we see our ill will. We know we're not at a place to don't return evil for evil or insult for insult. You, you, you know that maybe I might not actually say it, but you have, you just, hate is there. Bitterness is there. And the Christian is to know, just because you didn't say anything, you're not done yet. That this work isn't done on that particular you know, out of the next four million particulars coming your way. It's not done yet. So what we do, we realize, this is what I think Peter's getting at, that that horizontal struggle of our sin is this mercy and grace to show that's a vertical issue. You're not hoping fully in God's grace. And it's always there. It's amazing how God uses horizontal relationships. When you think your relationship with Him is going great, and you realize not, because you're not now hoping fully. So you cry out like Peter said in chapter 1, verse 13, Therefore, Therefore what? Do something. Prepare your minds for action. And be sober-minded. And hope fully in the grace to be brought to you. And so, that's the Christian life. That's the process. And then, at those times, God's grace may show up ten minutes later or ten days later. And rejuvenate your hope in that grace of the Gospel to such an extent I can actually bless that person. This is a redundancy Sunday. Let me summarize what I've tried to say. Chapter 3, verses 8 to 12. Live this way in order that you get the final inheritance is therefore not teaching that future inheritance of eternal life is something that we merit, work for, or earn. You can never, ever earn anything from God. Period. 
Apostle Paul made it crystal clear. God is not a man that He needs to be served by human hands as if He needed anything. That's the totally wrong approach. As we saw in chapter 1 of 1 Peter, God, by His power, is protecting believers all the way to the end. How? Through faith. Through faith, which is not meriting anything. Faith is trusting God to provide for us. Not works of merit. When you come to Christ... You come broken, you come receiving the gift of eternal life. In the next week, or 64 and a half years later, you don't switch tracks. That's Christian living. You don't get on another track where, okay, God's cleaned me up enough. It's been five and a half years. Thank God for the Word and the church and preaching and Bible reading and what you've been doing in my life. And I see you've changed me in here and there. The Gospel's great. Now, thank you, God. Now I'm going to go, stay right there, and do something for you. He doesn't need you to do anything for Him. And He is offended if you think you can. Because it's sinful disposition. The Christian life, new birth comes, faith is alive. And it starts by faith, and it continues by faith, and it never gets off the track of faith, defined as trusting God. In other words, it doesn't ever put God in the position of an employer, and you're the employee. See, employers are needy. That's why they employ. I need someone to do this and that and that so much I'm willing to pay them recompense them. They've earned it. There's no grace involved here. God's never an employer. He doesn't need that kind of obedience. Why does He demand obedience? The same way your doctor will get sick of you coming to His office if you never obey Him or her. You better get another doctor. I keep telling you what you need to do, and you don't take the medication I need to. I tell you to take. And no wonder, you know, you keep coming in to the hospital in the emergency room. Why don't you listen to me? Okay, you, the obedience. If you did listen to the doctor, or when you do, you're not hurting anything. You haven't healed it that way because you're going to the doctor. Okay, you, do you have the answer to this problem? I'm going as a needy person. You have the gift to give me. Tell me what to do. And you obey Him. That's the approach for us needy, sin-sick believers on a daily basis. And so what that means is that in 1 Peter, the blessing that's still future, to be inherited, that's conditional in that sense, it will not be inherited it will not be earned by works. What he's been teaching is that that future eternal life and blessing will be inherited by everybody who has been born of God or born again. 
And what he's teaching is that the evidence of being born again is a living hope in the grace of the gospel. And much of it is future. The evidence is that change heart towards God through Jesus Christ as the real satisfaction above all the former passions and desires that we still wrestle with. The evidence is that God now is our treasure. Though you don't see Jesus, the Savior, He's been ascended. You believe in Him. You rejoice. You love Him. Now think about it. Okay, here, here's real life. Okay, God, mercifully, you know, oh, this text last week, don't return evil for evil, insult for insult. You got, okay, that particular person, this moment, what do I do? To the extent we come into that, this is why the, the means of grace, like right now preaching, the Bible that you, you're fortunate enough to have, reading it, Memorizing Scripture, getting alone, having prayer time, communion. All of these means of grace are so desperately needed in the Christian life. Okay, you're struggling with it. Now, hope in God starts to rise. You pray. You're letting the Word work. And when God's mercies come to where that hope really rises... Where, in other words, you're basking in the greatest truth of your life. That God will not repay evil to you who really deserve it. It's really hard to repay evil horizontally to another person at that moment. Our problem is... This is why it's process and it's constant in life. We've got to press in because we need those moments after moments after moments after moments after moments. Don't we? And so we say, ah. Oh. So you get that dynamic? And then you say, that's what you're talking about, Jesus. When you said, bless those who persecute you, do all kinds of evil again. Huh? He's not saying to earn anything. He's saying, you, my children, I'm the doctor. Here's the medicine to do what seems impossible to you at the moment. Let me fill you. Come in and do that. So, oh, Jesus, that's what you mean when you give us this model prayer. Forgive us as we forgive the other. Not earn my forgiveness by doing that. Do you understand? Are you actually forgiven? Do you get the gospel? Is your hope fully in the reality of what the gospel is? Is that rising? But not just intellectually, by the Spirit at that moment? It's really hard to be unforgiven at that moment. That's what I think he's getting at. So as we close here in the next four minutes, let me just simply put my third way to repeat myself. Okay? We know that salvation is by grace through faith. That's what I'm saying. And faith, in other words, it is the instrument that receives salvation that God offers. 
faith. What is that? It is that which trusts God's Word as a doctor's prescription. And therefore, Peter says, blessing those who insult us is our divine calling in this passage and in a sense a condition of inheriting future salvation. When he does say that, he is not saying it's something that you merit or something that you earn by that thing going on in your life. He is saying you must be born again to inherit it. It's what he's saying. In other words, you must, see the connection to what we've been seeing this morning, you must have saving faith. Which, to one degree or another, if it's real, something's there. Water it. Something's growing out of it. As Paul said in Galatians 5, 6, the only thing that matters at all in life at its core is this. Faith working itself out in loving others. Not loving others, faith vertical, working itself out in loving others. And we know, as we struggle in our lives through this, Peter's preciously clear. Remember chapter 1. This battle of faith, this pressing on to hope fully, seeing evidences of it in our life, you'll never be anywhere close to perfect. He, He made it clear that God Himself in His love will pound your faith. He will cause grieving trials and tests to come into your life and buffet your faith. Chapter 1, verses 5 to 6. It's more precious than gold, tested by fire. There's a way in which we grieve and rejoice and grieve and rejoice and trust in the Gospel. Saints of old would talk about the quote-unquote dark nights of the soul. Don't give room for the devil in them. Just give room to fall on the truth of the Gospel, which is our only hope. So, we will be singing here in a minute and we'll be passing out communion. As we do, I just want to say, let us, abundant grace, go on, persevering in faith till the end, trusting that the saving love of the Father is protecting us all the way through this process. Absolutely. And let us, therefore, take the means of grace. Constantly be looking into the mirror of His Word to guide our journey in this life of faith and sin and faith and repentance, repentance and faith. And let us hear His gracious Word beckoning faith and repentance when He says to us in our text, Finally, All of you have unity of mind, sympathy towards one another, brotherly love, born of the same Spirit. Have a tender heart 
that feels for the other. And a humility about your intellect and your mind. Don't repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless. Because to this you were called in order that you may inherit a blessing. Lord, may Your Holy Spirit draw near and nearer and nearer to us, Your people, Your sheep. May You rejuvenate and cause hope to rise and to be full in the Gospel of Christ. May You bring full assurance of salvation to those whom You brought to Yourself. May You you let us see evidences of this in our lives in loving each other. To the glory of Jesus. Amen.